Welcome to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, a podcast about geek culture by lawyers, with your hosts, Ben Siders and Kirk Damon. Today's episode is brought to you by the Cones of Dunshire, the world's most punishingly complex tabletop game, ruining friendships since 2013. Welcome back to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, the podcast that asks interesting questions that don't have any answers with your host, Ben Siders, that's me, and the other guy is Kirk Damon. That's Kirk, as in the captain of the Enterprise. We are IP lawyers and certified geeks practicing law in St. Louis, Missouri. You can find me, Ben, on Twitter at Benjamin Siders, and you can find Kirk at KirkDMN. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at LGGPod and find all this information on our awesome website, LGGPodcast.com. Kirk, welcome back to America. Yep, I am now back. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I that took a trip to South America. Um, I went to Colorado. <laughs> Slightly less I went exotic. to Peru and Bolivia. Um, but yeah, so that was a lot of fun. It was very cool. Um, one of the things we did do in the course of it, and I'll just sort of for our readers that be interested. First off, uh, a call, shout out if... Um, Dwayne and Drew, you guys have decided you want to actually listen. Uh, welcome back. Hey, welcome to the show. Hopefully you like this. I take it we picked up some new listeners in South America. We potentially picked up some listeners in South America. The other thing, definitely uh, in conjunction with it, is I'll post up on the webpage. One of the great funds we had is going to Bolivia into a place called the Valley of the Moon. Um, one of the things that was still there is they celebrate a May the 4th celebration there. Kirk, and what happened on May the 4th? It matters to our listeners. <laughs> what happened on May the 4th? Everybody knows May the 4th. As in May the 4th be with you. Yes, Star Wars um, Day. And so they celebrate May the 4th day um, at this, it's called Valley of the Moon. It's known as the Valley of the Moon because when Neil Armstrong was orbiting the Earth, there were a number of things that he saw that he wanted to visit that he was able to see from space. One of those was actually the Bolivian Salt Flats, which is outside La Paz, uh, which is the capital of Bolivia. And in the course of it, he happened to see this valley in La Paz, and he said it looks like the surface of the moon. It's a bunch of essentially uh, limestone-type columns, stuff like that. It does look very alien. It's very cool. Um, but they have a number of people that started dressing up and just sort of showing up for Star Wars days and doing Star Wars sort of role-playing in the area. And the government, I think it was, uh, basically decided this was kind of a cool thing and wanted to encourage it. So they actually build life-size Star Wars vehicles in there. They're supposed to be temporary. Uh, they were still up when we got there. I mean, even though this was, you know, quite a number of months after May the 4th. But um, they, they're they basically made from paper mache, from what I could tell, is the one we could see. But they were pretty cool, and it's just sort of fun to see this. Uh, I have some great pictures of it. My favorite one is the uh, TIE fighter that was at the entrance. And if you look at the picture off on the side, you will also see the statue of the llama sitting right next to it, <laughs> uh, which I just think is kind of hilarious. But yeah, well, send those to me. I'll tweet them out on the LGG Pod Twitter account. Yeah, so. we'll send them out on the LGG Pod Twitter account for those of you who want to see. And there were only two vehicles that we saw. Uh, one I definitely saw from a distance, just from where we walked through it. We didn't go over to where it was. But stuff like that, um, just cool. generally for anything of what it is, anybody who's looking for a trip, I would hardly recommend Peru and Bolivia. It's pretty much anybody um, as a trip. Bolivia is a little bit less tourist-friendly. They're a little less used to it. It's not a problem. It's just one of those that are a little less used to it, um, whereas Peru is almost, in many respects, like visiting a European city. Interesting. Oh, Colorado is also very much like visiting a European city <laughs> in many respects. Should it be an American city? Particularly in Amsterdam. Um, no, Colorado was fun. We went up to the Rocky Mountains, and uh, I had I had a weird situation where I had a cell signal but no bars. So it didn't say no service. <laughs> it just said no bars of coverage. So I guess that means it could ping a tower but couldn't actually place a call. <laughs> Something like which that. Which I guess I don't see the difference between that and no service. But at any rate, uh, it was a fun trip. We're back now. So we're, we're a week a week delayed on this week's uh, this, uh, this yeah, podcast. Caused by episode. all of our vacations, effectively. And yeah. the season of vacation, I think, is now over. 
So yeah, so uh, thank you for hanging with us, uh, those of you who have. Okay, so uh, this this week's topic is tabletop role-playing games, and more specifically, we were originally going to cover sort of the, the gamut of Dungeons & Dragons lawsuits, because there's been a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, and while researching this, we, we kind of realized that there's more going on here than, than we even thought, and we're pretty familiar with a lot of this stuff. So uh, there's there's really, um, I would say, three or four different groups of lawsuits. there, And we're going to talk about two of them today. Yep. One was um, the attempts by uh, you know early role-playing games to avoid uh, infringing or offending any of Tolkien's IP in uh, The Lord of the Rings. Yep. Uh, there's not much to say about that. We think it's settled, maybe? We, we, but- From what I understand, these, these cases sort of never went to trial. They were settled. And a lot of what they had to do with is the use of names, specifically, you know, what we consider yeah. Tolkien-esque names from the books. Hobbit, you know. Yeah, Hobbit, and um, where the major ones, Balrog. Um, and those names being used in other properties, particularly in Dungeons and & Dragons. And then, in many respects, being changed to what I think we now consider to be the generic name yeah. for these things. So, you know, Hobbit becoming Halfling. I think most of us accept the halfling as the generic term for what a hobbit is, but halfling actually didn't exist as a term. You know, yeah. it was it was added by Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, well, so we'll get into that a little bit. We're also going to talk about, um, and the bulk of today's episode is going to be about the authorship disputes and royalty disputes over the money that came out of D and D in the late seventies and early eighties. Uh, and there's just two more categories that we'll address at some point in the future. One is the nineteen eighties uh, satanic cult moral panic uh, <laughs> that centered around Dungeons and Dragons and role playing in general. Yeah, and, and sort of expanded from there. And we also, I just discovered this yesterday. There's a whole series of cases about Dungeons and Dragons, the modern versions, being banned from U.S. prisons. Prisoners order these games and are not allowed to play them. Yep. And there's some First Amendment arguments about that. So we, we're going to do a whole episode on D&D in prison, which is something I never well, not just D&D. For things for games many role-playing and fantasy games, it actually could potentially be a very interesting episode, I think, for some of our readers who may not be listeners who may not be aware of this kind of stuff. Well, speaking of which, let's, let's get into the background of what Dungeons and Dragons is. We, Kirk and I were talking about this uh, earlier this week, and we are kind of going over sort of how video games have become very destigmatized. It was very much a thing nerds did when we were kids. Yep. And I guess since we're still nerds and we still do it, it still is. <laughs> but it's also things that cool, normal people do. Yeah. Uh, but I, I don't know when, that... we, when we were a kid, the, the the quarterback of the football team would beat you up for playing video games. Now he plays with yeah, you. Yeah, now he's the best guy at Madden in the, in the school, right? Yeah. Um, and he probably also plays Warcraft or something like that. <laughs> He definitely plays. Uh, what's the other one everybody plays? Fortnite. Uh, uh, no, uh, Fortnite. Yeah. So everybody plays that. Uh, so uh, we're we're not sure. And the, the list, let us know what you think, listeners. We're not sure that tabletop role playing games have been as destigmatized, and it still sort of remains a, a refuge of of, of the, the nerds and the outcasts. Yeah. And specifically, extent. we mean role playing games, not you know table standard tabletop games, not even necessarily tabletop. War games, yeah, you know stuff like Warhammer Forty Five K, like I play yeah. miniature combat games. We really mean the role playing games, the, In the where traditional you have, sense, yeah, the traditional sense where you have, and and this is a, the general introduction for those of you who may not be aware where exactly what a role playing game is, where you basically will have people generate a character with inside a fantasy universe. Most of this is done via dice rolls. Mm-hmm. There's certain levels of, of randomization, but there's also certain levels of choice. You generate effectively a persona, um, or put it another way, as an avatar. Yeah, a um, fictional character fictional in, a, character. in a setting, and then you you play the role of that character as part of the game. Yep. And in, we encounter this in video games, and actually many video games sort of have the role-playing aspects, where again, you generate, hey, I'm going to be a wizard, or I'm going to be yeah. a fighter, or I'm going to be whatever it is. But the role-playing there is different. Like in a video game, the role is, I'm the damage guy, I'm yeah. the healing guy. You know, you have a role in terms of like, what is my function in the party? 
in a in a tabletop role playing game, you're playing a role more like an actor playing a role in yes. a movie. And you're supposed to embody this character's personality, make decisions not based on what you necessarily would do, but what your character would do based on the personality you designed for the character. Yeah, I've oftentimes referred to what is role playing as as role playing is effectively interactive storytelling, and effectively so. what you're doing is you have the director, who's usually referred to as the games master or the dungeon, dungeon master, master specifically D&D. in Dungeons and Dragons. Um, and the other characters are effectively actors in the play, and a lot of it is for them to carry out the story. Now, there's things that take place in the background. There's places where you know random elements are introduced through dice rolls. Yeah. But what I what I that's found where the tension in the story comes yeah. from. Because nobody really knows what's going to happen. Not even the DM. Yep. Yeah, and that's and, and a few things you may encounter. Is DM is the sort dungeon of short for dungeon master. D and D sort of for dungeon. So the dungeon master is like the computer, right? In a video game, the dungeon master yep. administers the rules, makes the rules on behalf of the the quote unquote the AI. Although there, there's no A, it's just I. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and sort of enforces the rules and and, and bends them as necessary yep. to keep the game moving forward and keep it interesting. And, and I think there's an important aspect to keep in mind is that you know, and I noticed this. I I used to games master a number of games that I played. There hits a point in time when you get good enough with your game group where the dice almost go away. There's no need for random yeah. elements nearly as much as there used to be because you fall into the character and the character is this, you know, okay, I'm a you know thief. I'm going to try to steal this. Are you good enough to do it? Okay, we'll see whether or not you're potentially good enough to do it. Maybe that's a dice roll. But what happens there afterwards is not what is your charisma and can you talk your way out of it? It's literally can you talk your way out of yeah. it? <laughs> that just happened a lot when we'd play is uh, someone would miss a dice roll and I'd be like, you know what, convince me that you should have made it. You know, like what, you know, let's, let's do something fun or interesting yeah. or come up with a creative solution for, for this problem. Yeah, and that type of thing with it. The other thing that I think you bump into with role playing that I always think is very interesting is you create these personas. Depending on exactly what you play for a role playing game, a lot role playing games are quite lethal. Um, usually Dragon, combat's a significant part of it, yeah. right? There's usually some sort of combat mechanics or rule set, and that's usually a lot of the game is, is going through fight scenarios. Yep. And, and you know, even with role-playing games that aren't really miniature combat games, increasingly we, we rely upon miniatures to help chart out the combats and just make it easier to understand what's going on and where people are in time and yep. space. But also as part of it is it's one of these things where, you know, you sort of look at it and say, hey, I'm, I'm playing this role as to whatever it is. If you take like a movie or a video game, you know, sometimes the NPCs die and that's important and things mm-hmm. like that. That's true in conjunction with these types of games as well, but you have to realize that sort of each player is playing an actor and they're acting out that role. They don't, you know, they're trying to avoid this, but at the same time it's unavoidable. But it also necessarily breaks the fourth wall when it happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the things that I always think is very interesting about role playing is there is this idea of the fourth wall of being in character, being out of character, but th- there is no real fourth wall. Everybody always knows. You're just yeah. telling the story. You're just in character. Like a common thing that happens is like, uh, you know, you know, the party, you know, you'll have like three people that are playing together with one DM and, and the party's moving along and the DM, you know, set, leans over to one person and says, okay, r- roll your observation check and they roll and the DM hands them a note. Yeah. You know, and someone else, if you're a smart player, you say, wouldn't my character notice that he's noticing something? Like, yeah. like, so you're asking the DM questions as yourself, as the player, the same way that you might consult a rule book in a video game, you know, and, but that that's the social element of having, if you've seen Stranger Things, this is what they're playing, it's Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. You haven't seen it yet, have you? I still have not seen it. I literally own the DVDs and have not seen it. 
<laughs> so bad. Yeah. So th- there's a social element of being there in person, and you kind of slip in and out of character. And some people are more comfortable acting as their character and like doing a voice. Some people say, "Okay, well, my guy is gonna gonna swing a sword, or I'm gonna go up to the townspeople and ask them what's going on, or you know, things like that." So there's there's a lot of ways to go about this, and I think it's probably not a coincidence that people that are involved in drama club are often good at Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> the other too. thing you definitely bump into with Dungeons and Dragons is, and it, it goes to sort of Ben's point with it. You have these weird dichotomies of like certain characters should know things other ones don't. But the very but everybody active, already knows everything, yeah, right? So. And getting that information across them can be difficult. And just as a point, there's there's we're just talking about Dungeons and Dragons, which is a high fantasy type of game. There are these kind of games and role-playing games in huge numbers of different settings. Yeah. There are also role-playing games that play up the aspects of it being a role-playing game and yeah. making sure you stay in character. Like live action role-playing where you're always yeah. in character. Um, it's what it is. And even some of the ones where you're not, and the example like one I'll use is one that I'm particularly fond of is Paranoia. And <laughs> Paranoia is one of the jokes of it is you get bump into things where, you know, like in Dungeons & Dragons, character will ask you, well, under the rules, shouldn't it be this? Paranoia specifically says that characters cannot understand the rule book because the rule book is outside their security clearance. Mm-hmm. Knowing things outside your security clearance is potentially a death sentence. And so it's like they literally play up the fact of making sure that players don't do something that would make complete logical sense for everything they know, because in the game universe, it can't happen. And if it does, the game master can take advantage of it mm-hmm. um, and stuff like that. I remember I, I even played one that I thought was really amusing, which was uh, called The Hunt, um, which is a very small game. I mean, the, the rule book's like 10 pages. Uh, if you've seen the movie Running Man, that's basically the, the plot line of The Hunt. Uh, um, you know, it's you know rich people hunting criminals, um, except you play the criminals, um, and that's half the fun sort of in conjunction with it. But, you know, you get these kinds of things where it's, you know, you can play as anything, um, and then part of the thing with it is is the idea of staying in character, the idea of doing these kind of effects. And then, yeah, you get to what are called live-action role-playing games where you truly are the character. People dress up as these. They do them in real world. I have done them, but even that, um, you know, you bump into it. I had one. I was, I was playing a, a version of Vampire, which is another well-known... Uh, role-playing game. I was a shapeshifter. How do I turn into a wolf in real life? Just try real hard. Well, what I did <laughs> is you carry around a, an index card in front of you that says, I'm a wolf. You know, and it's those kind of things where, you know, you get into it and it's hard for people to sort of yeah, have you interact with it'd be difficult to suspend your disbelief of some <laughs> you know? of these things. We're going to focus on Dungeons & Dragons, which was a little bit of background on D&D. I'm sure a lot of our listeners have played it, but probably a lot also have not. Yep. Uh, it was developed in the 1970s, and it, I think it's fair to say is based in large part on Tolkien mythology, the Lord of the Rings series. The majority of, fa- of high Most fantasy is probably fantasy based is, on Tolkien yeah. mythology. Uh, and and there, there was, I, we think there was some original either lawsuits or disputes, but in any event, um, I, they originally used some of the the, uh, the nomenclature from Lord of the Rings. They had hobbits, uh, which are the, you know, the little short people. They had Ents, which were the large tree men, and the Balrog, which was the famous demon. Uh, and at some point, D&D changed this from Hobbit to Halfling, from Ent to Treant, and from Balrog to uh, just general demons, or, yeah. or Balor, I think is what it was. Yeah, there was also like, used. you know, like fourth degree demon, like they basically made yeah, it. Yeah, they added all these, there was a lot of demonology in it, which we'll get into that later too. Uh, so, um, you know, th- that, that dispute happened, but I don't think anything really interesting happened other than they changed these names to things that I think are now generally regarded as 
borderline generic, if not actually yep. to the generic words. I for think these most people would say that, particularly halfling, is is a generic term for sort of the the you know extremely short human, not dwarf, yeah. which is generally accepted to be a different race. Yeah. Well, and, um, and dwarf, the word dwarf goes back into you know Norse mythology, so that's yeah. not you know there, there's no IP rights in that. Yeah, and stuff like that. But definitely like this concept of halfling and sort of the things with it. The one I really thought was interesting, actually, when we learned about this, was triant. Yeah. Um, which was something I hadn't is really it thought triant of. or triant. I've heard it pronounced I've both heard it ways. Pronounced I don't both know ways. if there's like an actual. Um, well, hey, well, actually, people, let us know how you're supposed to pronounce. <laughs> how are you supposed to pronounce? T-R-E-A-N-T. I always said triant, but I said triant just now because I was reading it. I'm like, maybe it's aunt? I don't know. Um, and then you know, which is effectively a tree man, a, a tree yeah. that comes to life, um, and you know, stuff like that. And you know, I think that that, in many respects, is that sort of accepted term nowadays that are tree man. Um, but I think you know, many people prefer triant because essentially it's truly gender neutral because mm-hmm. they truly are gender neutral. It's a tree. Mm-hmm. Um, well, there were the Entwives, yeah. remember, that nobody could find. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I think that, you know, when you're talking about that kind of generic thing as to what it is, they, they they use a lot of these terms to be completely out there. The one that is kind of interesting, and I think we'll just touch on it briefly, is, is like, Balrog becoming demon. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those things where we, you know, when you watch The Hobbit, if you've read The Hobbit, you know, he's found because the dwarves dig too deep in the crust of the earth. And I think Gandalf has describes him as a demon of the old world. A demon of the old world. A demon of Morgoth, I think yeah. he says. You have this idea of there being kind of ancient evil, that it being underground. You know, a lot of very much sort of classic, both yeah. religious and mythological sort of discussions of underworld um, and things like that. And it, it is interesting to see that that is something that I think has also pervaded a lot of fantasy, and again, a lot of fantasy role-playing going forward. And that probably did come out of V&D. You mm-hmm. know, it's, in a lot of those other ones, it was more just a passing. And again, like in The Hobbit, he may be a demon of the old world, maybe something like that, but it was the idea that this was a mythical creature. It was something very evil, mm-hmm. but it was a truly, it was a mythical creature in their world. Well, like, it's, it's still pervasive. I mean, Stranger Things has the, the demigorgon, which, you know, Gorgon obviously is a, a Medusa, basically. Yeah. And I don't know what, the, I don't know what a demigorgon is offhand. So like a demigod, but, almost. But yeah, but uh, the, <laughs> you know, the, the theme of the demigorgon and the monster in, in Stranger Things is called the demigorgon through out. So, so these these sort of uh, I would almost say pop culture, but it's more pop nerd culture things yeah. have have penetrated the, the general parlance of, of like modern uh, cinema. Even yeah. so, these these things have far reaching effects that I'm sure nobody in 1970 saw coming. Yeah, exactly. So D and D, as we said, has been the subject of a lot of controversy over the years for a number of reasons. We're going to cover uh, category number one today, which is basically internal business disputes over the authorship of the various D and D modules and the. Associated revenue, which is really what people cared about, uh, from the, the you know the sale and license of of a Dungeons and Dragons products. And I think one of the things worth pointing out here, and it's I wonder how to put this to give you guys a bit of the context. People know Dungeons and Dragons so well, and Dungeons and Dragons obviously gets referred to sort of as role playing. People don't talk about it as being role playing games. In many respects, Dungeons and Dragons was the first. And, and I think there's a lot of argument that it truly was the first um, of what it was. And the concept of Dungeons and Dragons, this idea of you have a storyteller, you're using the dice's randomization, mm-hmm. and again, this kind of interactive storytelling concept is something that, you know, from at least from what I've found in, in just my research and stuff like that, just didn't exist 
prior yeah. to this stage. You know, or, or if it did, it wasn't it wasn't commercialized and sold and packaged up in this way. This was something that was that was new in the market. Yeah, you would have had role playing. You know, you have things like masquerade balls. You know, they go back forever. You know, the idea of playing different roles and stuff like that, but not this idea of this being a game. This you sitting around a table. And again, I think the real key aspect of this is is in many respects when you're doing this, you know, you are playing. You know. I'm playing, you know, a you know grumpy dwarf that's 150 years old when I'm a teenager sitting around the table, you know that kind of thing. So it, it, you you get into this idea that there's there's a necessary suspension of disbelief, and I think one of the things that really came into it, and part of the reason there was a lot of controversy that we're we're not going to get into, is because this was weird. It was a very different way to think about things. But from our point of view now, and I think the real key thing to keep in mind, this is what creates the major intellectual property disputes in here is nobody. Mm-hmm. Really done anything like this before? Yeah, and we've we've talked before about how games are kind of tricky to cover with IP rights anyway. Game mechanics and rules generally are not protected by anything. The only thing that really applies well is patents, and uh, I can't patent a manual. So yeah, there's and copyright to the direct <clears throat> materials. Yeah, it's, and, and the copyright scope is, shall we say, prop thin compared to yep. say a novel. So uh, you know, it's. It's, uh, it's, it's a tricky area to protect, and so as a practical matter, what we wind up doing with games for the most part is covering it by contract, which we will see is what happens here. Yep. So I think it's important to understand that uh, you know, there have been many Dungeons & Dragons editions over the years. I think we're currently up to 5th edition. Yeah. I think 6th Now, it, it's also, and I think you mentioned this as well, there is Dungeons and & Dragons and there is Advanced Dungeons & Dragons. Yeah, we've gone, so yeah, we'll, we'll cover Advanced. So it started out as Dungeons & Dragons, and then they started introducing Advanced Dungeons & Dragons. Then there was Advanced Dungeons & Dragons 2nd Edition, although there was never a Dungeons & Dragons 2nd Edition. Yep. And then I think for 3rd and after, they went back to just Dungeons & Dragons. Yep. I think they went back like to the Greyhawk uh, universe and, and did that. So all the D&D editions have had a couple of things in common over the years. One is that you generally need to have the rule book, which is normally called the player's handbook. That's sort yep. of the starting point that explains to the to a player of the game the basics of, of how it works and what they need to do. It explains the world. It explains how you create a character within this and what different skills yeah. within characters mean. The basic mean. rules. Usually the spells are in there if there's magic yep. and the skills and all those things. Basic equipment, that's what yeah. and, and the way to think about it is it's, you're going to have lists of things that say, okay, here's the skills like a thief could have. So a thief can have a skill which makes them more stealthy or makes them quicker or you know those mm-hmm. kind of things with it. Those are the those are ways you define what the character is and what their personality is. And again, be thinking of this as an avatar. And for those of you who may have grown up in sort of the video game world and have never role played, you know when you're doing character creation at the beginning or during the course of it, when you're you know, boosting certain attributes because you get your at your experience points and things like that, that's kind of what this is doing. But you you never start truly at the beginning. You usually yeah. start with a character start the idea that they had some experience and where what does that experience taught them and where does that lie? And that's what you're doing is you're creating this character that has a personality and a skill set. And what yeah. the, the player's handbook discusses is the ways to think about those types of things. So again, like if I have a character that's stealthy, I can talk about the fact that I, I'm going to move quietly and I should be able to do that. If I have a character that's, you know, quick, I should be able to move faster than the, another average person. Mm-hmm. Or I can do, you know, a, a, a deception, a, a hand deception quicker than the eye magician's trick. I should be able to get away with. Whereas a stealthy character would not be able to do that. Yep. Uh, the, the second thing that's in common with most of these is there's usually a Dungeon Master's Handbook, which is sort of the uh, the AI behind the scenes. It tells the person running the game what the rules are, how they enforce uh, sort of the, the rules behind the scenes that players don't necessarily need to know. Um, it, I, 
I find that those often overlap a lot with the player's handbook, but it's got a lot of usually good tips and ideas for how to DM a game. And, and quite frankly, some... a lot of players have also read the Dungeon Master's book. Yeah, you got to yeah. keep that That's in mind. Usually the second thing you get. <laughs> and then the third and the main subject of today's podcast is the Monster Manual, which is basically an encyclopedia of statistics for all the creatures in the game. This is basically a paper database of NPCs yep. and, that you can fight. And effectively what they have in conjunction with all books will have this. The Monster Manual is an example of what is oftentimes referred to as supplemental books or source books. Yep. Um, and the idea behind source books is they usually put a lot of them out, but you don't need all of them. You only need the ones that are relevant to what you're doing. Particularly so they may a player. Have, yeah. So a game, a Gundam Master who wants to set something in a particular city, there are source books for the different cities. That yep. this is, you know, important locations, things like that. Now, depending on what your characters are, you may have a character that's familiar with the city, that's read the source book. You may have a character who's new to the city, the idea they haven't read the source book. Um, and and that's the kind of thing that you go through with. One of the major ones that in, in Dungeons & Dragons, it was called the Monster Manual, is effectively the enemies. Yep. Um, and that's always an important aspect of these. They all have from, these source books. From basic things like wolves to dragons and griffins and creatures like yeah, that. Yeah, and, and literally like undefeatable like mega monsters yeah. and stuff like, like that. the Balrog. <laughs> the Balrog. <laughs> so the authorship Balor. of these various elements was disputed from the outset. Um, the original D&D system, I think we everybody agrees, was jointly developed uh, by two guys named uh, Gary, I don't know how to pronounce his last Gygax. name. Gary Gygax. And another guy named Dave Arneson who are from Minnesota and Wisconsin, of course. Um, and uh, the rules were first published in 1974 by a company called Tactical Studies Rules, now known as TSR, TSR. Uh, which I think was Gary's company, I want to say. Yeah, it was. I think it was, yeah. Um, and almost immediately there was a lawsuit. So um, <laughs> Arneson sued uh, Gygax and TSR uh, for breach of a royalty agreement claiming that uh, Arneson was being underpaid. And his basis for that was that after the original D&D materials were published, uh, Gygax and TSR wrote new supplementary materials. They wrote the Advanced Player's Handbook, and they wrote a monster manual uh, and things like that. There's a second monster manual. And then well, also, at this point, it's just the first monster. It's still the monster manual. manual. Okay. Yeah. So then the second one, second, we're getting to the second one, which okay. is where this gets really juicy. Uh, so they, they, you know, Gygax publishes other materials. Uh, Arneson sued. Uh, they settled, and that was that. So it, it seemed to be over. And now we're creeping into the early 1980s. Um, at this point, D and D has kind of taken off. Uh, yeah. It's become a thing. And I don't know for sure. I haven't really researched it, but I suspect that TSR probably overexpanded into this space based on the early success. Uh, in, in any case, by the, the the mid-1980s, TSR was financially struggling yep. and well, looking to save some money. And one of the things to keep in mind in conjunction with books like this is, is a you need to keep in mind a little bit of a business model and some economics behind this. If you're producing games like this, the problem you bump into is once the person owns the player's manual and the dungeon's manual, How do they, get more money? they technically don't need anything else. They can play the game forever without anything else. And so what a lot of times when they put out these source books, what they're doing is they're expanding the universe. The source books in many respects are, are almost specialties, a specialty type of novel. Yeah. Because they're designed to explain what's going on there. You know, I used to, as a kid, I actually enjoyed reading source books. Yeah. Because they're written as if, you know, as here's instructions for what this thing is, here's what the piece is about it. But they have very narrative, very novella. They have the universe building elements. Yeah, universe to it, the, the flavor building elements. elements. And D&D &D was famous for having a ton of settings. So the original setting was called Greyhawk, and then they added Forgotten Realms. Yep. They started hiring authors to write novels. Then we got Dragonlance and all yep. these. Uh, um, got Winter's Bane, is it Winter's oh, Winter or something? Gosh. Was there it? was one set in like a Mesoamerican type setting. Yeah. Um, what was the one? Dark Sun, maybe? Um, okay, yeah, that's... That's not right. I thought Dark Sun was a different game, actually. But. It could be. The Outer Plains. All, all, the point is they had a ton of stuff. So, But before all that happened... 
uh, Arneson and TSR had had settled and agreed that. Um, well, let's back up. What was Arneson's basis for saying he has any rights to this at all? I mean, why can't Gary go out independently and write all this stuff? Why does Arneson have any say in it? And this this gets into, and we've touched on this in conjunction with the show before. What's called derivative works. Yeah. And this is really what we're talking about here. And this is where role playing games are actually a great way to illustrate derivative work. When you think about what a role-playing game is, again, if we say, hey, here's the player's manual, here's the the guy manual, and I create this very large, open-ended universe. Nobody has really done anything in conjunction with it, but I have an entire planet, and I've explored one tiny city in it. That's all I've talked about. Now, there's hints at other cities being out there, there's other places being out there. Think about the idea as if you were to go and read The Hobbit. The Hobbit takes place in a relatively, you know, geographically confined area. I mean, they walk everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, but there's a lot of discussions of what else is in Middle-earth. If you want to learn about Middle-earth, go read The Sumerian, which is the discussion yeah. of what is Middle-earth, how is Middle-earth founded, what, is, what are all the places there. In a novel, you're never going to necessarily investigate all these things because you're focused on the story yeah. as to what it is. There's no time. It's not necessary. Yeah, it's not necessary. In a role-playing game, your players can go anywhere. They can decide they want to get on a horse and ride until the horse yeah. dies. And if you don't want them to, then you as the DM have to come up with <laughs> some, some creative way to contain can't. them. Because but, if, if they're rascally yeah. enough, they'll try and thwart you. Um, and things like that. And so what you have is that they basically the way they keep sales going for these things is they slowly establish other pieces of the universe. So it may start, and it's where we talked about the settings. You may start in the city of Greyhawk, and then it's, no, we're going to introduce another city, and here's this all the materials for that city, which introduces new enemies, which introduces new storylines. Maybe these game modules, too, yep. that people can play through and things like that. And things like that. And, and there's a lot of sort of play with that. There's also what you bump into is what are called play, uh, pre-written campaigns. Yeah. You have adventures um, and campaigns. And adventures yep. usually a short module that you can play in a couple hours. A campaign is sort of like uh, you know going through the entire story of a book where it's yep. a longer multi-session thing that's going to take you a while to get through. And in many respects, these things are actually written by the game master, but in in the company puts ones out. Mm-hmm. One to give examples of how to be thinking about these types of things. I mean, I, I played games where you know a module is three pages. Like, that's yeah. literally everything you need. I mean, there, there are companies that did this and did this successfully where they would publish magazines and they'd put three or four games. Four, yeah, was a dungeon magazine would take users submissions yeah. and, and publish uh, adventures that were written by uh, yep. you know by just players by players and stuff like that and, and you know most of the places had those kind of things but so when you think so about TSR's it publishing this stuff and they're not paying Arneson but he didn't write any of the yeah. of the new stuff so I guess conceptually is there any I mean isn't this basically a version of fan fiction that Gary is just writing additional material that fits with this universe yes. and uses the same rules it's kind of like fan fiction isn't it it but is since, since he's so then the, so we have all the same questions right if Arneson is one of the co-authors of the original, then his permission should be needed, right, to produce you know what's basically commercialized fan fiction. Yeah, and we're now getting into, the, and that's the thing, we're getting into that this is without question commercial works. TSR yeah. is making these and yeah. selling. Yeah, these. Your, your fair use argument is gone. That, yeah, that's your not fair use that. argument is gone. Um, not posting you know, it on your live journal. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it's not fan fiction in that respect. It is this is 100% commercial work. But we still bump into those same questions of is it derivative works? You know, are there sequel rights? Um, I have to admit, I, one of the questions I have with this that I don't think we were able to investigate or find an answer to questionably is how much of the way we think about derivative works actually came out of some of these suits of things around this time. Because, again, if you look at a lot of traditional derivative works, it meant making a screenplay from a book. 
Um, whereas this really is this concept, not even of sequel rights. It's an entirely new work. That's yeah. just I, I would describe it as compatible with or usable yeah. with the prior work. I guess the question is, does it have any independent value? If I don't have the original works, can I still use these source books? And for D&D, the answer is generally no. The, the, the source books themselves don't give you enough to play the game without having the original yep. works. But if I'm Gary, I say, well then, uh, Dave, that's where you get your royalty from. People buying the source books have to have the original book or they can't use it. Yep, you develop the rules and that's the thing with it. At the same time, you could totally read the Monster Manual without having no idea about Dungeons and Dragons and find it quite an enjoyable read. You definitely could. Because there's there's you know, what's commonly referred to as fluff text. That's yes. a, a, a thing you'll hear as a sort of play it's in something the Something to add to increase the copyrightability because the, the data by <laughs> itself is generally not copyrightable. Yeah, because it gives you the data of here's the monster, but then it also gives you an explanation of what the monster is, what it does, where yep. it comes from, which is just to give you an understanding of what it is as opposed to it just being a stat line yeah. of well, saying, how to use the monster this is in a the powerful game. monster, this is a less powerful monster. Well, Another interesting point that just occurred to me looking at this, the original was published in 1974. That's before the current Copyright Act. So the original was published under the 1911 Copyright Act, which obviously predates role-playing games and Mm -hmm. World War I, among other (laughs) things. So so that goes way back. But then the new stuff was published, I think, after the new act took effect. At least some of it definitely was. Yeah, so you've got sort of a a dueling Copyright Act thing, which may affect Arneson's insistence upon being a credited author and and some other things there. Uh, So another... Potential argument, because Arneson also argued breach of contract, that he wasn't getting these royalties, is there a breach of the implied covenant of good faith and fair dealing, that TSR was writing this stuff and trying to avoid having to pay him uh, royalties by how they structured uh, the new materials they were writing. Yes. That was basically an attempt to deny him money he would otherwise be entitled to. Had they just gone back and republished the original works and yep. included those materials, well, then he'd clearly be entitled to a royalty, Instead right? of updating and rewriting a source book that he was involved we're with, gonna or he was entirely involved with, we're going to release an entirely new book that, that has the kind of stuff with it. So, and I think that that can be discounted at this point in time. Is there there is some argument that what was being done in this point in time was being done purposefully to avoid having to pay him royalties. That he wasn't an author. We didn't need another author because you have you know Gary and his company um, sort of sitting over here and being that you know that's what it is. The company has no problem you know taking in the money. The company's obviously going to pay him for the the process stuff like that that he's writing. There's he had unquestionably rights to the royalties. Mm-hmm. But then you bump into the, but what about this co-creator, this person who at the very early stage helped create what is effectively an entirely new thing, but now only one of the two people is kind of continuing to move forward with it. How much involvement does the second person have? Is it something where we really kind of want them to cut out because it's going forward without them? Or is it something that because they were involved in the beginning, they have to always be part of it? Well, it turned out to be the latter because they settled this. Yep. And uh, they agreed that Arneson would get a 2.5% royalty for all sales of the Monster Manual or any revisions to it. And that and, gives a little bit of that derivative work idea. Yeah. Now, obviously, if he was involved specifically in the Monster Manual— He'd probably get a higher share, right? Yeah. So um, this is him saying, you need my derivative work rights, but I think he's, he's recognizing here that— you know, Gary did all the work on it. He put the thousands of hours into putting it together. So while Arneson gets something for the derivative work, he doesn't get much because most of the new material is, is brand new. It's nothing yep. that was already there. Yeah, and that, and I think there's two things about this is he gets it for the sales of the Monster Manual, the specific book, which obviously at that point in time did exist. And so we know exactly what this is. And then any revisions to it. Let's talk about that because that that winds up being where the the real ugly dispute comes, comes up. In. So 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 
in, in legal contracts, we use definitions, right? We, we don't just say the monster manual. We define what that is to make it clear. Yeah. So the contract, the settlement agreement here, defined the monster manual as, and I'm going to quote, the book currently published by TSR entitled Advanced Dungeons and Dragons Monster Manual and any revised edition or foreign language translation thereof, end quote. Yep. So it's simple enough. That's a good definition. And now just to put in the thing with it, foreign language translation thereof is almost certainly a derivative, derivative work. work. That's, yep. that's a yep. well-accepted for the changing language. Language is a well-accepted derivative work that almost certainly would require a copyright royalty to be paid. Revised edition is where we get into the question is because a yeah. revised edition is also clearly a derivative work. But what does it really mean to be a revised edition versus being a new thing in the same spirit? Here's how they defined revised edition. It means, quote, a printed work having a title the same as or similar to the related earlier work, revised to include changes or additions to the text, but continuing to include substantially the same rules and subject matter as contained in the earlier work, end quote. Yep. So, that makes sense to me. I mean, that sounds like we're going to re-release the same thing, but but modify it, add to it, yep. change it, but include most of what was already there. And as we refine the rules, as the what you bump into in all these kind of games is as they refine the core player rules and the core dungeon master rules, you also have to revise the rules in monster manuals and additional source books because... You know, they may say, hey, we originally had three stats to cover this. We now need two. Yep. So we can get rid of the third one, but we adjusted all the numbers slightly because that's what they need yeah. to be. I, I like the word substantially here. Continuing to include substantially the same rules. This yep. is something we do a lot when drafting contracts to avoid strict interpretations. We say it's going to be substantially the same or in substance the same or, or materially the same. And what this basically does is set up a jury question. There are certain things that are clearly the same, <laughs> certain things that are clearly nowhere near the same. Yep. And there's a gray area in between. And we kind of hope that there aren't very many disputes that fall within the gray area because if you have to come down to whether it's substantially the same or not, it's probably a question of fact and that dispute's either going to be settled or have to go to a jury. Yep. You're never going to win on a dispositive. And we've talked about that, I think, previously the idea that questions of fact go to a jury, those are what are considered factual questions and a fact finder and they basically go into what do we think is the, the, the determination sort of technically underneath this. It doesn't matter what the law has to say. The question with it is, is, is technically this substantially the same or is it substantially different? If it's substantially the same, the law knows that the answer goes this way. If it's substantially not the same, the law knows the answer goes this way. But we need to resolve that as not a legal question, but effectively a technical question yeah. is the way I'd put it. Um, and it's it's one of those things that people who are not familiar with law, who have not studied law, the separation of what's called legal and, and factual questions can be a very difficult thing to understand because a lot of people look at it and say, well, the question is, is whether or not it's a copyright infringement. And the answer is yes, but before we can get there, we have to solve the technical question of what is it? Yeah. And then once we know what it is, actually the question of whether or not it's a copyright infringement is very easy. Yeah. And so you bump into this sort of factual question of what is it. Um, and easy ways to sort of think about this and just to sort of throw out there uh, things in like chemical, uh, sorry, in criminal things that we're all familiar with, you know, we all look at it and say, you know, what does it mean to kill? We all know what that means. What does it mean to commit homicide? Mm-hmm. is different. And homicide is different from murder, too. Murder, from murder is a criminal act. Homicide just means you killed somebody. Yes. It may be a legal defense to that. And those types of things with it, where we look at those sort of meanings of the words, and when we then come into, is a homicide a murder, you then bump into the factual questions of, well, what happened 
in the homicide mm-hmm. and does that meet the criteria you know yeah. is that what it is you know what happened in the in the homicide then you bump into the once we know what happened you bump into the legal question of what does it mean to be a murder yeah. and versus how bad being, of a murder was it was yeah. there malice of forethought was there yeah. all the all the things you look at or do you have a, a colorable defense i yeah. was a self defense so yeah it was i killed the guy or it was but accidental. I had to. yeah you know those kind of things that you bump into and again when you think about it is 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 it self defense is it an accidental shooting? Is it a purposeful shooting? You bump into those things where it's those are questions of technical yeah. result. Those are not. It's basically like law. fair use. You have a copyright infringement is a question of law, and then fair use is is a defense to that. Yep. So the, the analogy kind of fits. Yep. So, well, so in 1983, TSR did publish another book, The Monster Manual Two, which had 300 new creatures, and TSR uh, paid Arneson about hundred thousand dollars in royalties under this agreement. Seems seems fine, right? Everything's on the up and up. Yep. Well, then they stopped. <laughs> yeah. And they said, uh, well, it was not actually a revision, uh, Monster Manual 2. It was not actually a revision. And the royalties had been paid by mistake. And uh, TSR said, we're going to offset other royalties we owe uh, uh, you know, in the future against this $100,000 we've already paid. And that's how they're going to claw back their $100K. Yep. Uh, Arneson said, uh, Whiskey Tango, Foxtrot. There's no way that that's correct. <laughs> uh, uh, you can't just do that. And he sued them. And uh, TSR then counterclaimed to get his $100,000 dollars back. Now, so why, why did why did TSR just stop all of a sudden? Yep. Now, and I think the interesting thing about here is is you know when we're talking about these things. The a key key to keep in mind is they have already paid him royalties on yeah. this, um, which seems to imply that they think it is covered. And then their response back is. No, that was a mistake. We're not supposed to have paid you. Not only are we now saying what we gave gonna, you, you're not supposed to have. We want it back. Yeah, we want it back, and we're not going to pay you anything else. Yeah. Well, this is also an interesting situation because, I mean, $100,000 in 1983, that's a lot of money. It's a substantial amount of money. A yeah. huge amount of money. And so Arneson is now armed to defend himself. You yeah. Know, ha- had they just said at the outset, no, we're not going to pay you for this, you know, open question whether Arneson had the resources. He may or may not. I don't know. But, you know, they've already given him $100,000 and given him the war chest to launch a, a lawsuit against them. So they should not have been surprised when he sued them. Uh, There's also, uh, I think, a reasonable inference that the reason TSR stopped paying uh, was that they were running into financial troubles by the by the mid eighties? Yep. Um, TSR basically had one product, which was Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, yeah, and they, they got back on their feet after a while and eventually sold the Wizards of the Coast. But in the mid eighties, I think was the height of their financial difficulties. I don't fully understand why all that happened. I would guess the moral panic that we're going to talk about in a different episode is probably related to that. But in any event, I, if I had to speculate, at least if, I, if I'm putting on my I'm Arneson's lawyer hat and I'm going to pretend I'm representing him, that's the story I'm going to tell to the judge and the jury. This yep. is not a case of them saying, oh, we made a mistake. This is a case of them trying to shore up their profit and loss statements and their cash flow for their investors uh, and, to, and to stop the bleeding. And so they're just going to make up some some arguments for why they don't actually owe me this money that they very clearly think that they owe me. That's that's what I'd be saying. Yeah, and, and exactly. They, say, they clearly think they owe it because they paid it to me previously. Yeah. Now, Who the, accidentally pays $100,000 yeah. in royalties? The company has one product. How hard is it to keep track of? Yeah, and and so and I think it's one of the things to jump back. And let's jump back to what was that sort of you know revised edition. Recognizing... This is clearly not the Monster Manual published by, you know, TSR as of that day. This is a new thing. Monster so it does Manual not fall 2. under the, 
the currently published work. This is a revised edition of the definition well, of the contract. Well, that's what Artisan says. It's a revised, defi- revised yeah. edition. TSR says it's not. But there's our factual question. Yeah. Is is it a revised edition? It's clearly not the book called Monster Manual. It doesn't fall under the first definition. Yeah. It clearly would, it would only fall under the second one. So revised, the revised, let's, let's, let's go through the argument. So Arneson says, the only issue here is whether manual, ma- bleh, Monster Manual 2, try saying that 10 times fast, <laughs> includes substantially the same subject matter as Monster Manual because the definition says that he's entitled to two royalties on a revised edition, which would include a printed work having the same or similar title. Well, it's similar. It's similar. It's got a Roman numeral yeah. two after the same title, yeah. Revised to include changes. I you know, query whether dropping everything and adding all new stuff is... 300 is, new creatures. Yeah. Or additions to the text. Well, is it an addition if none of the original text is there? Yep. And this is the key to in mind. The Monster Manual 2 did not include the monsters from the original Monster Manual. Well, it correctly. did have an index to um, everything. Okay. So, so it did have that. Uh, and um, I think it did. I'm going from memory from reading the case hastily <laughs> this morning. Uh, and, and then continuing to include substantially the same rules. Well, the Monster Manual doesn't actually have rules in it, really. It's just got data for the monsters. Yeah. So I, I guess you could say the data is for the same set of rules, but the rules themselves aren't in there. And substantially the same subject matter as contained in the earlier work. Well, that seems to me to be the case. They're both monster books, you know, yeah. discussing monsters set in the same universe. But just like thinking that. about the word revised edition, intuitively, I release a whole new book with all original material. How is that a revised edition of the prior yeah. book? It doesn't seem to fit, it? Does doesn't it doesn't seem to fit. And yet we do have, it clearly has the same or similar title. I mean, virtually identical yeah. title. Clearly a sequel title. It does seem to include rules and subject matter mm-hmm. because it's obviously talking about similar rules. You know, the monsters are all going to have similar rules depending on what they are. And it does include subject matter in the fact that it includes monsters. But it doesn't really have an overlap of the fact that not even the same monsters are in it. There are yeah. different monsters in it's it. It's all new stuff. But then as you talk about, like it has an index in the back which indexes all the monsters in both monster manuals. Which kind of links them together in a way, doesn't it? Yeah. So that's what Arneson said. He said, uh, also the preface of the Monster Manual 2 says that it's an extension of the first Monster Manual, and that there will be more. There may be a Monster Manual 3 and a Monster Manual 4. So Arneson says they're really just adding new monsters to what is really one sort of single logical work, kind of like an encyclopedia with multiple volumes. All the volumes are part of the encyclopedia. And now I'm going to take sort of, I guess, you know, the the attorney for Gaia Axe is coming in and saying, but it's a wholly separate book. Yeah. You have licensed Encyclopedia Volume A and revised editions of A. The fact that we produced B does not mean it's the same, it's anything related to A. It's the next letter in the alphabet. It's totally different. Nothing's been changed. None of it's even in there. Yeah. And there's no additions because we didn't add to anything that's already there. We didn't even include any of it. I mean, right. The whole thing's an addition. So yeah. I say if you it's read new work. If you read the word addition, it's ADD, not ED, addition that broadly, then then every book is an addition of every other book because it's got all new stuff. And, and it just doesn't make any sense. And we really then play around with it is it's a sequel. Yeah. Well, there is no sequel right. It's one of the things I think we talked about on this show. It's one of the things that I think is particularly a very interesting area of copyright law. There's no rights to owning a sequel. There, mm-hmm. There's ways that people get rights into sequels, but there's no specific rights to a sequel. This sounds more like a sequel. Well, then you say, is you know, is there a derivative work argument here that this is also, like if Monster Manual 1 was derivative of the work, why wouldn't Monster Manual 2 be? And I'm not sure if there's a reason why Arneson didn't also pursue a copyright claim here. Yeah, and I have the feeling part of the reason for it is is because he had the contract. 
Yeah. And in some sense, the contract already had 2.5% royalty. You know what it's going to be. It's fixed. He'd also been paid that. Remember, he was yeah. trying to keep the royalties, not give them back. Yeah. Um, that's true. I'm not sure he was necessarily going for damages. It was just that I'm entitled to keep these royalties and I'm entitled yeah, to be that's true. They already paid to him. He just says, I'm not going to give it back and I'm entitled yeah. to more royalties going forward. Yeah, so I think part of it was just a, as a strategic point of view, the, the contract's potentially the better way to bring this um, because yeah. it, the, the damages were clear. Again, if this is a revised edition, as soon as that determination is made, it falls under the contract. He's entitled to the money. He's entitled to the money going forward. Yeah. End of story. Well, and, and question whether the copyright claims would have been subsumed by the contract in some way. I don't yeah. know what the law was on this in 1983 yeah. when, when this was filed. So uh, there's probably a good reason for that. that This doesn't come across in the case. But in any event, he just sued for breach of the settlement agreement. Maybe that's why, as the claims have been waived. I don't know. Uh, but anyway, TSR also argued that the term subject matter means – this is a curious argument. Subject matter means the substance of the text, not the subject matter of the text. <laughs> Curious argument. <laughs> yeah, it, it definitely is. Um, and I think it's, you know, what is, it, it obviously had the same subject. We're talking about monsters, yeah, monsters set in the Dungeons, Dungeons and Dragons. Dragons. I think by substance, what they really meant was content. They yeah. meant that the content is entirely new, although it is about the same subject matter. Yeah. Uh, the content is new, and that the term subject matter here, I, if I was them, I would read this in conjunction. So it has to have both the same rules and the same subject matter. Yeah. In this case, although the subject matter may be the same, the, there's the rules aren't involved. It's just not implicated at all. But that's yeah. not what they say. I, I think the, the thing you really get into in conjunction with this is when you really think about it as having the same subject matter, that term can be read very broadly. You know, you can look at it and say, you know, a, a you know chemistry for preschoolers book and, you know, a high-end molecular chemistry for a PhD level yeah. course, chem. you know, could also have the same subject matter, the chemistry. Yeah. Chemistry. You know, even though those are completely separate books and one would never argue they have anything to do with each other. Um, and so I think that part of it may be that there was a concern that subject matter would be read so broadly, yeah. it wouldn't matter. It was impossible for it not to have the same subject matter if it was set in the D&D universe. So with this teed up, Kirk, uh, what, what's your instinct? Whose side do you like better? Which I know is a hard yeah. question to ask because you already know who I already wins. know the answer um, as to whatever it is. I have to admit when I look at this kind of thing, and this is, again, just coming from my personal bias, I think derivative work goes too far you know, yeah. in conjunction with these things. I really kind of look at it and say this is a wholly separate work. It would seem to me like this is actually not a copyright infringement. What we have to bump into is the contract issue. The contract issue, I I really think that, to me, the damaging thing in this is the fact that they called it Monster Manual 2. Yeah. It has the same title, essentially. And you even said in the preface, it's, it's part of one logical work and there's going to yes. be more. Like, So you're linking, I mean, Gygax and TSR, they're linking it up themselves in the preface to the book, then later saying, no, 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 it's not, yeah. it's not, a, it's not a revised edition. It's the idea of saying it's a 500-page book. Instead of publishing it as one 500-page book, I'm going to publish it as two 250-page books. Yeah. Does not mean it's not one book. Yeah. Are, are, is that just a way of gaming the contract to deprive yes. uh, uh, Arneson of the benefit of the bargain? And I think that, to me, that was that's the thing that kind of strikes it with me is to me it feels like this was intended to be a revision except instead of it being we're going to publish the monster manual with 300 new monsters plus the old ones we're just going to publish the new piece and the reason for it is probably quite frankly practically it's easier to publish a wholly new book with the new piece mm-hmm. than it is to go back and revise yeah, why and reprint the old stuff and have to because people already have the first one they right? nobody wants to pay one. more for a second one it's already got the same yeah. material and so you're going to add an extra pages and it's going to cost the same because nobody's going to want it you know, stuff like that you're really intending this to be 
a revision to the original book. We're just releasing it as the second half of the existing book. Well, the court agrees with you and found for Arneson. And in doing that, the court consulted two different dictionaries to look up what subject matter means. <laughs> Remember, subject matter we tied to, we just talked about, they said that that did not mean subject yeah, they agreed. They said subject matter does not mean subject. It means substance, which yeah. is TSR's argument. TSR's argument. So they won on the definition, but they lost anyway. Uh, the court said that the substance of both works was monsters for use with D&D and that the works were identical in purpose and application. So now we're getting into the function of the text, which yeah. is the domain of patents, not copyrights. I think that's odd. Uh, but anyway, TSR had argued that the descriptions were entirely new. The court didn't buy that. The court said there was, quote, a common theme uh, and let me back up. The court found, quote, a common theme exists for the complete work, end quote, and, quote, the unifying basis of the two works, their essential idea is that these parts make up a whole, an encyclopedia of creatures for the AD&D game system, end quote. So now we've also offended not only the difference between uh, copyrights and patents, but the idea-expression dichotomy. They're <laughs> saying, oh, it's all the same idea. And the interesting thing about this is, is now we have to get into the thing of how much of this is because this is for a role-playing game. Oh, and also how much this is motivated by they know that TSR already paid $100,000 in royalties and then suddenly stopped what happens to be at the same time they're having financial problems. Yeah. And so the court look at this and say, you know what, you guys, you thought it was a revised edition. You just changed your mind yeah. at the last minute. And now they could have said that. The court could have come down and basically said, look, you know, based upon the actions of the parties, all the parties actually believe that this is a revised yeah. edition and we're going to find that. Which is interesting because there that's are... That's a finding of fact, keep in mind. That's not a finding of law. Well, and it's interesting. You're, you're Normally, you would raise maybe an estoppel defense uh-huh. uh, against so- something like that. Uh, if, if you're uh, Arnest, maybe you say, TSR, at this point you've been paying this. You are now a stop from denying it. By, by your conduct, you've shown what you thought the contract meant. And, you, and unilateral mistake, that's not a basis for rescission. So, so, But none of these arguments came up here. I find that all yeah. very odd. There's a lot of more complexity that could have gone into this case that's just not evident in the decision. Maybe it was dealt with earlier yep. in, the, in the prosecution of the case. And I think a really interesting thing with this is we do seem to have this assertions by the courts, which seems to effectively run afoul in some idea of copyright law. Now, admittedly, we're not interpreting copyright yeah. law. We are interpreting They've the contract. contracted around it, which you, you can do. Yep. You absolutely can do. Um, but I, I just, I found, I mean, I don't I don't disagree with the outcome. The outcome seems right. Yep. In, in just a justice sense, it seems it seems clear to me what happened here and that Arneson was owed the money and, and should have gotten it. Um, I, I just find the, 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 the path by which they arrived at that yep. conclusion to be less satisfying than I would have liked. What I find very interesting about the reasoning, and this is the thing that I think I really get into in conjunction with it, and this is just sort of a personal thing for me as well, which is these are books for a role-playing game. Mm-hmm. These are not novels. But they again, they have novel aspects, they have storytelling yeah. aspects, they have these kind of things with them. And the them. monster manuals in particular are basically giant databases. Yeah, they're giant databases of information for something which is larger than what each of them is. And that's the thing I think that you really get into when they sort of say, that this kind of, the unifying basis is that these are parts of a whole, which is the AD&D universe. Mm-hmm. And what you then get into, and I think that's where you bump into it, is it's the, really what we're saying is all of this is one work. Mm-hmm. And... I'm sympathetic to that idea. The idea that when you set something in a universe, you set it particularly in a universe, it feels like you're doing something you don't need to do. I could write a monster manual which has nothing to do with Dungeons and Dragons. I could have taken all 300 of the monsters before they ever appeared in the Dungeons and Dragons universe and written a book which was simply a field guide to monsters, mm-hmm. left out D&D rules, There's a Harry which Potter is book relatively like that, small. Right? Yeah. And I would have a book which is clearly separate. But 
I purposely tied it to the Dungeons and Dragons universe. I called it Monster Manual. Called it Monster two. Manual Two. I said it's part of the same yep. a continuation of the same text. It implies it is one continuous work, and I think this is something that is very strongly struggled with, quite frankly, in copyright law, and has continued to be struggled with. In copyright law and even in things like fan fiction and yep. stuff like that, of the why is the story set in this universe as opposed to just telling the same story in its own universe? Mm-hmm. It feels like it's because there's something about that universe that you want, that you are using the intellectual property of somebody else. But at the same time, copyright sort of doesn't really acknowledge that. Yeah. Um, and it's it's it, it's almost know. more of a trademark type yeah. concern that like I want to I want to I want to move copy off shelves. People are going to buy it because it's for Dungeons and Dragons, not because they love the content of Monster Manual Two. Yeah. If Monster Manual Two was released without the without the data and just the the descriptions of the monsters, nobody's buying it. Yep. Not for D, not for this purpose. Yeah, and I think that's the, the sort of thing you really get that's very very intriguing. You know, in conjunction with this, is how much did that influence yeah. the court. Well, so let me ask you this. What what could TSR have done different either in making their arguments to the court or in how they wrote the contract, you know, to, to for lack of a better word, get away with this, to make it clearer that yeah. this was not supposed, this is not what they meant by, because with a contract, we're looking for a meeting of the minds, right? Yeah. The, the, the written words themselves are just evidence of what the agreement is. The agreement is what, you know, Arneson and Gygax had in their heads that was the same when they put their names down on the sheet of paper. And the sheet of paper is supposed to say what that was. So they wrote this definition to revised edition. And this is a pretty typical contract dispute where it just doesn't apply very cleanly to what actually happened. So, yeah, I, I think the, the first thing you look at with this, and I mean, again, if I'm, if I'm you know, TSR and I want to get around this contract, knowing the contract's out there. The first thing is, is I don't call it Monster Manual 2. Yeah. You know, I, I come in and I'm like, it's the Wild Things Guide. You know, it's it's something, you know, where I basically say it's separable. It's not monsters, it's encounters. In the you preface, know. you say, well, congratulations for purchasing this brand new work from yeah. TSR. And you use terms like new work yeah. and don't reference the original at all. Yeah, you don't separate it. Don't include an index of the monsters from the original. Yep. You separate it, you basically say this is a holy separate thing. And again, I think you see more of this today. I think companies do this. You know, it's the, this is part of the Dragonlance portion of D&D. This is part of the Greyhawk yeah. portion of D&D. Like, you know, those things are very separated. And so while this has a monster manual, that has a monster manual, those are very, very clearly different things because they're set in different worlds. To get to the extreme level of it, we start getting into the alternate universe type of stuff. Is this the same thing because it's set in an alternate universe? But to my mind, that was the, the biggest mistake they made is the fact that they called it the monster manual too. Yeah. And then they played royalties, <laughs> implying they and then they it to be a sequel. Yeah. They intended it to be part of the same thing. It was just an easy... It, to me, it jumps down to the... The only reason it's a separate book is because it's easier to publish it that way. Yeah, it, it's for practical reasons. They have nothing to do with, with the contract. Yeah. You know, we wrote a first book and published it. We wrote a second book and published it. You know, you've got to have money coming in on a regular basis when you're in the publishing business. And you're not going to wait and spend four years writing one gigantic book that you have to sell for $145. Yeah. You're going to write four books and sell them each for 30 bucks. you know? Yeah. And you're going to have a more smoother revenue stream. So this is a situation where like the practicality of how the publishing business worked, the needs of the business to have regular cash coming in to pay expenses kind of caused them to release the books this way, which then led to a legal dispute, which itself really has nothing to do with any of that. Yep. So this is this is very typical of how lawsuits come up. Yeah, and that's and I also think it's very good as to what it is, is the idea of the important thing I think also in conjunction with this is it seems like they're thinking something different at the time that they publish this yeah. than they're then later arguing. And and that's one of those things where I think you bump into 
a lot of times when people get annoyed at lawyers, it's the idea that, you know, everybody had an agreement until the lawyer looked at it and realized that that's yeah. not what the agreement said. Yeah, because when we get this, this contract, it's just one sheet of paper, and they said, and, and it'll say, uh, yeah, this is Gary. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell Dave he can have 2.5% of, of the Monster Manual or, 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 or the second edition of it. And we as lawyers would say, what do you mean second edition? And they look at you funny and say, what do you mean, what do you mean? Second edition? Everyone knows what a second edition is. I'm like, well, yeah. write, write a definition for me. And of course they can't. Yeah. And they say, well, okay, well, what about a third edition? What about a fourth edition? And the client will say, okay, oh, well, okay, so we'll say any revised edition. All yeah. right. So we write this definition that I think actually describes a revised edition. Yeah, because we want to update and yeah. add some stuff to it later. But does it describe a wholly new work that is a sequel, basically, of the original work. And as you said, copyright's not very clear on this. It seems like a derivative work, but what part of Monster Manual 1 has been adapted or translated in Monster Manual 2? Really nothing Nothing has. in it, yeah. And, and, and again, that's where you bump into, I think this is where both such courts a neat have gray trouble. Area. Yeah, it's a neat gray area. Courts have trouble. But it's also one of those things where I think when you, if you read a lot of discussion about it, people will look at this and say, well, of course it's a second edition. Look at it. It's volume two of the same thing. So it's the same. And the answer is that's great that it's volume two. Volume two doesn't mean anything under Volume two is law. not the same as second edition. Yeah. You know? I mean, I've got second editions of books that were released in the 50s that have since been re-released for modern you know, sensibilities yeah. and language and things like that. That's a second edition of the same text. Yeah. That's not a sequel to the original. A second edition of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone is not worth anything. Thing. A first edition is. Yeah. <laughs> the first edition of um, the second book is. What is, is the second book? <laughs> it's escaping me I'm right blanking. Now. Is that the. I can't remember. It's because Chamber of Secrets, but that's not right. I um, think that is right. The one with the basilisk? <laughs> is that right? I okay, yeah, right. it's Chamber of Secrets. The right. third one is Prisoner of Azkaban. Prisoner of Azkaban. Um, and so, you know, the Chamber of Secrets first edition is different from a. Sorcerer's Stone Second Edition. Mm-hmm. One's Volume Two. One's the Second. You know, yeah. we look at it and say those are clearly different. Yeah. So which and, is it? And just when I see the term, so had they used a different word besides revised? Like if so, also putting on my Arneson hat. What could we have done to avoid this lawsuit and make it clear? Rather than saying revised edition, which sounds like a revised a edition, <laughs> a revision. Do we say something like other editions? Uh, you know, um, how about other books that discuss monsters? Yeah. Or just or enemies, or other works, or new works, or just make it clearer. So it's it's not perfectly clear to me that that Arneson. I mean, I think I think the outcome is just. I would say it's not perfectly clear to me that taking this as a strict legal interpretation matter that Arneson was unquestionably in the right. Yeah, I think he was. But um, the the way this is written, there's definitely I can see why TSR took a crack at this. It's not that clear. Yeah, and and again, I think that one of the things, and maybe it's a good place to sort of leave this up as well, and sort of you know talk about it in conjunction with it. what we're talking about here is one sentence of a contract. You know, yeah. which was drafted to presumably cover something. Which was a settlement of a prior dispute. Yeah, a prior you, know? A prior no, dispute. you don't usually expect the settlement agreement to itself yeah. be litigated. And you think that everybody probably had a basic understanding of what this was. Now that may have been a disagreement. They thought this was the end two. of it, right? They thought this was the end of it. But now we have this thing that basically comes down to, but what did it actually mean? And so much of what I, I when we talk about a lot of these legal issues and things like that, one of the things I hope guys who've been a long time listeners of this show, people who've listened to the show for a long time, will get into the thing of a lot of what we talk about in here is individual words have very, very interesting meanings when lawyers get a hold of them. Mm-hmm. And and the reason for it is, is because oftentimes a word can have two different interpretations and given a fact situation, the difference between those two fact situations, the, 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 those two meanings can change whether or not something is or is not what it is. And that's a very universal thing in all forms of law. Yeah, the Oxford comma can be worth millions of dollars if it's misused. Yeah, you know, <laughs> and, and you bump into those things as to, you know, and what a word means. You know, when you look at 
a definition of a word, if I look up any word in the, def- in the dictionary, you tend to have like de- def- you know, definition one, definition two, definition three. In law, if it's definition one versus definition three, it can matter. Yeah, for sure. You know, and that's an important part aspect of law, and it's what a lot of these legal disputes resolve around. And when we're asking these kind of questions, when you're asking, what does this mean in the first part? You know, hey, what is this? It oftentimes comes down to, well, is it definition one or definition three? Which of these definitions yeah. is the correct definition for and this? what you're trying to get to is the mutual agreement of the parties. What did yeah. they mean when they wrote this word down? And this is why people, you know, when you have an old contract like this, and this comes up when people talk about the Constitution, too. You know, <laughs> what, what, what do these words mean? Well, you can't just look up the words in a modern dictionary and yeah. say this is what it meant. What did the words mean in the 1790s when the thing was being signed? You know, <laughs> uh, completely different. And we see that in things like— um, um, the the copyright clause says you know to promote the advancements of science and the useful arts. Well, useful arts is as opposed to the fine arts. The fine arts is creative works. That's yeah. copyright. The useful arts is science and inventions. But we didn't use the word science at the time. We yep. call them the useful arts. That's why you get like a. And we um, actually use science oftentimes to refer to the fine arts. Yeah. Well, it's like a Bachelor of Arts degree. You get a Bachelor of Arts degree in chemistry. Yeah. It's the useful arts as well as the fine arts. So it, it, the, the arts term is, is kind of you know, state of the art, we say, when we're talking about technological yeah. advancement. It doesn't make any sense. It's an antiquated term we don't use that way anymore. Interestingly, the idea of like to playing off the definitions, this is where you really get into it. I, I, one of the guys I know, you know, we, have, we both know him, we've worked with him for a while. Um, he's fascinated by dictionaries and, and the concept of what dictionaries are. And he did for a while, he would acquire dictionaries at garage sales or use books for wherever he could find them. And he would pick words, and he particularly liked to pick controversial political words. And he would start in like 1920 with the Oxford English Dictionary and follow how the definition of that word changed from 1920 to the present day in the Oxford English Dictionary. Mm-hmm. And, and the idea is then, well, what does that word mean? It, it's literally when it you're interpreting it depends on what it means. Um, and you see this, anybody who's sort of studied like literature, you bump into, you know, sort of very times when, when things seem out of place because mm-hmm. the words, like one of the ones that always struck me and I still distinctly remember it is reading in, um, in I think it was late elementary school, the poem, The Rape of the Lock, mm-hmm. which is more accurately translated as The Theft of the Lock. Yeah. Because, you know, when it was written, those terms were somewhat interchangeable. Yeah, the term rape and pillage means burn down. Yeah, you know, and that type of thing sort of really destroy th- steel. Yeah. Um, and it's one of those things where, you know, that is nothing, that definition today. Like, you know, it, there's still an aspect of it, but it's a much more refined, a much more specific definition. Well, if we then take a document that used that term in 1910. Yeah, it's out of context. It doesn't make sense It's out of context. Now. What does it mean? Now, if we take one that says it in 1600, what does it mean? You know, and those are the kind of things that you then bump into when you're doing legal interpretation. Well, what was the contract in the 1600s supposed to say? Yeah. You know? We see this now with international, even between the U.S. US and the UK, words have very different meanings, or yeah. and really, you know, they can have very different meanings. But they can also have very different uh, sort of subtext or nuanced connotations, you know, as between an American reader and a British or an Australian yeah. reader. And then, and then, you know, good luck dealing with somebody for whom English is a second language. They're not going to ever get yeah. the same kind of context. So you bump into those words in foreign languages that have no translation. I, I learned German gemütlich has no American tra- in English translation. Mm-hmm. You have to sort of understand what it means. Now you can give basic premises of what it is. Um, and I think that's one of the things you actually bump into like in English is the, the reason American English tends to absorb so many words is because they're the words we can't translate. So we just yeah. 
absorb them. Yeah, just um, use them directly. Everybody knows what that means. Um, and things like that. But yeah, it's it, it really is sort of a fundamental thing, I think, in conjunction with law. And it really was a lot of the focus of this episode is getting into a contract dispute. So we weren't getting into copyright legislation. We weren't getting into copyright wording, which may be more formalistic, maybe generated by legislatures, involve a lot of political compromise. Mm-hmm. We're now talking about a contract where two, it was only two parties. They yeah, were clearly intending law. to say what they weren't intended to say. And we still have the same dispute. We still yeah, have the same issues. Th- that's probably a, a great takeaway from this is, is it's, it's kind of understandable how a, a body of legislators come up with sort of neutral, bland, unclear language just to get a law passed. But here you have two parties negotiating the settlement of a dispute, and they still were not able to put it to rest. The exact same dispute came up again almost immediately afterwards. But uh, again, I think I think we had to place some emphasis on the financial troubles at TSR at the time, which may have motivated them to take a crack at trying to save some money by get, getting out of this, and yep. it didn't work. So, Okay, well, uh, wrapping up, our next topic, I think, uh, we don't have anything planned specifically, but I think we might do Ben and Kirk go to the movies, because <laughs> Kirk has finally seen Infinity War and I, I got Endgame. caught up on my Marvel Universe on airplanes. It's amazing what a six-hour international flight will do for you. <laughs> uh, so we, we may just do like a movie episode. We haven't talked about the new Star Wars a teaser trailer yet, and Kirk and I have an inhumane amount of thoughts on that. <laughs> that are probably like worth, every Star Wars yeah. fan does. We might, we might do like a way-too-early predictions episode. Maybe we'll each offer, uh, I don't know, three three or four things we think are going to happen based on the trailer, and we'll see how far off we are. Somebody will say, I have a bad feeling about this. That's that's not fair. We know what's going to happen. <laughs> hey, it was almost I, wrong. I, I, it almost was. Well, that's true. I, I, I ban that one, though. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so, uh, so yeah, so that, that's next time. I think we'll probably do something. We do sort of a, a more lighthearted uh, movie or just general pop culture discussion episode and, and probably not get too far into uh, legal issues. So if you don't like those, you can skip the next episode. But I know you like them, so uh, we look forward to having you. Okay, there's the music, and it's time to go. Check out our website at L- uh, www.lggpodcast.com. It has links to our various platforms where you can download prior episodes and get in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook, and by email. Subscribe to this podcast on the platforms and give us a review. That helps new listeners find us. You can find me on Twitter at Benjamin Siders and Kirk is on Twitter at KirkDMN. That's all for today. We'll see you next time. Lorem, play us out. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Lewis Rice LLC, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. This podcast was produced and recorded at Cool Fire Studios in St. Louis, Missouri. 